0: Hello, and welcome to the Path of Most Persistence. This is a place where we hear and share tenacious stories of overcoming obstacles with our partners who dare to share a bit of their own personal paths. Retired Colonel David Hammonds currently serves as the Operational Learning Manager in the Chevron Technical Center in Houston, Texas. David joined Chevron in 1998 as the Operations Supervisor at the Port Arthur lubricants plant. In 2008, he was selected as America's Region Procurement Operations Manager and then served as the America's Region Operational Excellence Manager before becoming the Manager of the Port Arthur's Lubricant Plant and Chevron's Human and Organizational Performance Manager. David retired from the United States Army Reserve as a Colonel after 30 years of service in 2017, having served in key command and staff positions, including assignments as a brigade commander and chief of staff. His Army career spanned numerous active and reserve assignments and includes deployments to Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Kuwait, Afghanistan, and Poland. His education includes a Bachelor of Science degree in Animal Science from Texas A&M University, a Master's degree in Logistics and Strategic Studies from Texas A&M University, Central Texas, and the United States Army War College as a Distinguished Military Graduate. He is married to Kelly Hammond and they have two daughters. David, it is such an honor to have you here with us today. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here. This uh, ought to be fun.
0: I, I hope it is. And because you are an Aggie, how does it feel? How does it feel to be here with us today on campus? It's
1: always good to get back to College Station. And, uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, right, it's amazing how much things have changed uh, since 1987. You find yourself wandering around campus, recognizing a few landmarks yes. and marveling at all the new construction.
0: Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And have you been in the Zachary since we are in the Zachary building? Have you been in the I, Zachary?
1: I have not. State? As an animal science major, I spent most of my time on the west side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, since, since I was not an engineering student, I, th- I think I might have had one class in Zachary, but I'm not Positive. Okay.
0: Well, it's substantially different. They tried to keep many of the iconic pieces to the original building, but um, our then dean, now president, uh, President Banks, did a, a fabulous job with this this building, and we're just so proud to show it off. So, hopefully, before you leave today, you'll have an opportunity to look about.
1: It's a neat facility. It,
0: it is. It is lovely. So it's it's lovely working here as well. So, um, just for our audience and an apology to you. I always feel um, a bit uh, embarrassed that I have to shorten our guests resumes and introductions because, again, you're so accomplished. Um, But for the sake of brevity, I needed to do that. But with all of your accomplishments, I want to start off with your service Um, as a civilian, never have served in any capacity. I always like to say thank you for your dedication and service and, and not only to you, but to your family. Can you tell me a little bit about your service and why you chose to serve?
1: Let me start with why I yeah. chose to serve. Um, you know, I, I was raised in a family that uh, uh, had, a, had a number of people serve. My, my, my father had been in the Army. Uh, my grandfather before him on actually on both sides of the family. Um, and interestingly, my, my father's cousin, uh, Miller Jr., um, was an Aggie and and was killed in World War II, mm-hmm. so his name is on the the wall at the Memorial Student yes. Center, yes. and my middle name is is Miller, and so oh, nice. uh, that always formed a strong connection. Yes. Um, yes. and I and I always wanted to be an Aggie, so I came to A and applied for a uh, an Army scholarship and and got it, uh, and at that point. Um, you know, it just kind of made sense to me that I would I would follow through and and take my commission and and serve.
0: So you were in the cadets. Yes. Oh, excellent. That's what I assumed, but I wasn't yeah. quite sure. Excellent, very good. So I'm always very curious of of people. Not only do I have this appreciation for uh, individuals that serve, but especially those with whom they they come from this family lineage of serving. How does how does that go about? Is that something that in your Family in your particular situation, did you speak of it, or was it just basically the water you you swam in, you you grew up in?
1: We we did. I mean, I, I when I when I say that uh, you know my my dad, my my grandfather's, my uncle had all served. Um, they they we we weren't an active duty military mm-hmm. family, right? Mm-hmm. My my dad was a farmer, mm-hmm. and um, but but they had all sort of lived up to that ethos of the citizen soldier, right? Yes. They, they had all done their part at their time. So um, I was always acutely aware of that. And uh, and it was always something that I, I aspired to, I think, whether I knew it or not. So mm-hmm. um, again, it just felt natural and kind of like the thing that I ought to do. Now, I didn't know I was going to spend a career doing it. Yes. Um, But uh, as it turned out, that's what I did.
0: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And before we leave this this topic, I want to know over those 30 years, so many lessons learned, so many opportunities for advancement, but there had to have been challenges as well. So can you share with me, our audience, maybe perhaps some of the highlights as far as what you feel most proud and maybe some of the aspects that were most challenging in, in any regard to those, in those 30 years?
1: Yeah, I, I think n- number one, I'm I'm really proud of the fact that, that um, I a- achieved the things that I set out to do mm-hmm. uh, while I was in the military. Um, I, I, aside from the, the service aspects of it, uh, when when I was a lieutenant um, at, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, in the 82nd Airborne Division, you know, brand, le- brand new second lieutenant, really just learning how to lead, learning yes. uh, learning how to how to learning my craft as a soldier. Um, I, I I looked up at, at our brigade commander, um, a guy named Colonel Kusick, who was the uh, 82nd Airborne Division Support Command commander, and I thought, wow, if I could ever get to that place, I would have been wildly successful. Wow. That's got to be the most amazing you know, job in the world. And, uh, uh, of course, went on from there uh, as, as a lieutenant, learned those basic leadership lessons that you need to learn as a young person, uh, matured into a, a company commander uh, at, at Fort Hood, Texas in the 1st Cavalry Division um, and then transitioned off of active duty mm-hmm. uh, into uh, into the Army Reserve and I thought well I'm just not gonna achieve all of the things that I thought I would, right? I'll, I'll do this Army Reserve thing, it'll yeah. give me the opportunity to continue to contribute and to serve, but You know, that that dream that I had when I was a second lieutenant that if I could ever be the 82nd Airborne Division Support Command commander would be the best thing in the world, I thought, well, that's not going to happen. And interestingly, uh, as an Army reservist, I, I went on to become a battalion commander. Uh, served in another uh, a number of other staff positions mm-hmm. and um, eventually took command of the 90th Sustainment Brigade out uh, of Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. And, um, and while I was there, we had the opportunity to support the 82nd Airborne Division Warfighter Exercise, mm-hmm. which is a, a big simulation capstone exercise for, for staffs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and uh, in the process of doing that, I became the de facto 82nd Airborne Division Support Brigade Commander. Mm-hmm. And uh, got to sit down with the Division Commander and work through things. And I, I remember very distinctly this moment when um, the 82nd Airborne Division Commander came into our, our command post. Uh, and he and I were looking over the map and he was asking me what we could do to support an operation he wanted to do. And I had this sudden realization. Oh, wow. I'm doing that thing that I thought I might want to do as a Lieutenant, you know, wow.
0: that's incredible.
1: So I, I'm incredibly proud of that. That was a, one of those little epiphany moments where, where you, uh, you say, Oh, wow, this is sort of a dream come true.
0: Okay. So um, a few comments. So you mentioned that moment where you said, oh, wow, I'm doing the thing. But you early on in your comments you made this comment about your achievements. You had all these achievements that you wanted to accomplish. So my question is, were you intentional? Did you have a plan? Are you one of those individuals that say this year I will accomplish in five years, in ten years, or to accomplish your goals, was it just something just about doing the right thing, stepping in the right direction every day, or was it more meticulous in your planning?
1: I wouldn't say it was meticulous, mm-hmm. um, but I would say that I, I definitely had goals. Here's, I don't know, in, in my life and career, uh, I've always found it helpful to have an aspirational goal mm-hmm. to say you know what I'd like to get into this position in an organization or I would like to serve in that capacity
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't think you can sit down and map that out and have a roadmap map that says okay first I'm gonna do step 1 then step 2 then step 3 yes. in order to get there very mm-hmm. often life will take you in different directions
0: yes it does
1: but if you have that, that signpost out there, mm-hmm. if you have that mile marker that you, you, you kind of adjust your aim a little bit, yes. you can still get to the place that you want to be. You, know, you can still achieve those goals. So I, I, I'm not the meticulous planner who has mapped out every step of the way. Very often opportunities come along that I hadn't anticipated yes. that are really neat things to do. Um, but I would say that you have to kind of plan your vector. Yes. You, you have to yes. be moving in that direction, even though you might not get there the way you thought you were.
0: So maybe in other words, uh, just being very intentional about what you do, but being nimble and flexible all along the way.
1: And open to opportunity.
0: Yes. And it seems as though... Uh, one opportunity opens another opportunity uh obviously you've had lots of opportunities and you continue to achieve so it seems as though once you've achieved a certain level, it opens more opportunities that give you additional as well.
1: It absolutely does and and a lot of times in unexpected ways yes um i'll 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 give you an example right uh as a plant manager um we started experimenting in something called human and organizational performance, mm-hmm. um, because frankly, our uh, safety performance was not great, and and we needed to do something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I went to a workshop, heard it, heard a, a speech, and I said, "Hey, I think this this might be uh, a solution. You know, maybe we should explore this a little more." Uh, and I had a senior leader who very graciously said, you know what? It seems like you have a passion for that. I'm going to provide you with some uh, top cover, if you will. Nice. You go experiment and see if that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. See if that works. And it did. It worked brilliantly when uh, as we um, changed the way that, that we thought about safety, changed the way that we thought about Um, our operational excellence performance and in the course of implementing this human and organizational performance philosophy within the organization I I really had no thoughts about what to do with it beyond that I was hey I'm the plant manager I'm gonna do that job for as long as they'll let me um, and uh, and and we'll see what happens next Mm -hmm. well sure enough Uh, a year or two later I see a job posting for a senior operations advisor for human and organizational performance and I read it and I said well gosh this is exactly (laughs) what we've been doing in practice for the past couple of years Nice. I think I might be qualified for that right I think I might be able to contribute in that way and I wound up taking my career from a, a focus on operations to uh, a focus on health, safety and environmental. So you you just you you do things, you expand your experience, you learn and you never know how or when the opportunity to apply um, those lessons is going to come about.
0: So true. So true. So uh, a few things, um, first of all, how fortunate you were to have a leadership that allowed you that yeah. opportunity to experiment, so to speak, and just to figure it out. That I think for, um, any employee, any person within a team to have leadership that allows you to, uh, investigate, to create, to discover is one of the greatest gifts. Um, that I think you can give to a colleague or to someone that you work with. But on on top of that, you mentioned human performance and that is throughout your experience in your resume. I'm very interested in human performance. I'm very interested in in that whole area. I wanna know what have you found the most intriguing, the most exciting uh, aspect about performance? What have you found uh, also that is the great motivator or the unifying motivator for most individuals within organizations?
1: Well, I think for, first off, let me let me ground for the audience. Right, uh, human and organizational performance is a, is a science. Um, you know, sometimes you might hear it referred to as safety to safety differently. Mm-hmm. It is a, a set of operating principles that essentially say that. Uh, human performance or human and organizational performance is the way that our people interact with their work systems their equipment their processes and their work culture in order to get work done
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, in human and organizational performance we we have five principles mm-hmm. and the very first principle is that error is normal or people make mistakes I've, mm-hmm. I've seen it articulated both ways um, and, and that was a revelation to me because our old systems thought about people's behaviors and how we could force people to behave in the right way, yes. how we could um, try to try to elicit machine reliability out of people. Well, mm-hmm. if you need machine reliability, you ought to get a machine to do something. Exactly. But people are adaptable. And, and that's why we hire people, right? That's why people uh, are really, really good at solving problems and yes. doing work because they, they have the ability to adapt. Along with that comes the fact that people also can make mistakes, that mm. error is normal. And it's so normal, it's not even really very interesting. The really interesting thing is how do we design a, a system in which people can make mistakes mm. In which error can happen, and we don't have that negative consequence associated with it. Mm. So I, I think for me, the 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 revelation was acknowledging that I ought to stop trying to fix people, yes, and that I ought to concentrate on making my system more resilient. Mm.
0: Okay, this is a wonderful opportunity to pivot into safety. Sure. Um, Because this is, it goes right into it. And of course, obviously, I know that you all, as far as Chevron and all of the organizations you've worked for, there's that foundation of safety. And we, of course, being the Nuclear Power Institute, That's founded in safety as well. Safety culture is everything. And
1: human performance grew out of the nuclear industry.
0: Yes, from some of the challenges, some of the mistakes and issues, of course. But um, I think one thing that's a unifying force in all of that, every uh, opportunity or challenge or um, uh, incident has provided opportunity to learn to make those safety uh, issues and procedures, guidelines, policy more robust. And it is something that we learn from each other from different sectors as well. And that's a beautiful thing that we share in lots of that. I don't think any of the sectors are trying to keep uh, any of our procedures on safety. Sa-
1: safety is not proprietary.
0: That's exactly true. So. Let's talk about safety. So from your perspective, and again, just being aware that our audience is quite general and vast, from young individuals to highly accomplished individuals, let's talk about safety from your perspective and perhaps even from your organization. What does safety mean to you in your position? And if you want to speak to your organization, what it means to you all.
1: Yeah, I you know, I I I think safety you, you see uh, there there's a, a lot of uh a, a lot of jargon a, a lot of um kind of trite frankly uh slogans that get thrown around yes. about safety, right? We talk about safety first, safety is our highest priority, safety is well, any organization is designed to do something. Yeah. And organizations don't exist to produce safety. Right. Uh, so I, I think safety really has to be a core value within the organization. Mm-hmm. It, it's not really. It's not a priority. Uh, it's not an outcome of uh, of of that the organization is intended to uh, to produce. But but. But safety has really got to be a core value if an organization values its people yes. and th- this idea that we can do this really fascinating, complex adaptive work in uh, in very tough environments mm. oftentimes yes. um, and that we can do it safely and send people home at the end of the day. Yes the way they came in that morning or or better um, is really core to an organization's values if that organization uh, really aspires to be a world-class organization.
0: Um, Very true and you mentioned about it that an organization organization values its people but it goes beyond that wouldn't you agree as far as the community because if you're not welcomed in your community for whatever's perceived for safety or not it, I know you all are, are intentional about being good neighbors stewards and and all of those aspe- aspects as well so uh, it goes beyond your people
1: it, it goes beyond your pe- it goes beyond your fence line right Absolutely. it it it, it uh, it is absolutely critical for the communities in which we operate. It's critical for um, the the people that work for us. Many of the people that work for us are contractors, right? they yes. They are there temporarily to do a specific piece of work or yeah. a specific job, and then they're gone. That doesn't mean that we should value them any less. We, want to be great partners, and we want to be known for uh, for our, our partnership. And, and part of that is being a good member of the community, it's being a good partner to our business partners who come in and do work with us, uh, as well as to our own people.
0: Oh, excellent, excellent. And going a, a little bit further in that, as far as um, the surrounding, again, because our partners include uh, elementary, secondary schools. Sure. So do you, can you speak to any kind of initiatives or projects that your organization or maybe something that you have directly impact on with partnerships with uh, education in any way? And if not um, primary, secondary, but perhaps even higher ed?
1: I'm so glad you asked because one, one of the things that I get the privilege to do, and I'm really passionate about mm-hmm. um, with Chevron is a, a few years ago, um, that that same senior leader, uh, Kevin Lukey, who was our, our vice president at the time, uh, gave me the opportunity to to be the management sponsor of what we call the Chevron Tractor Restoration Competition. Now, a tractor restoration competition, you might ask, how does that relate to an oil company? But Chevron has has sponsored the this tractor restoration competition for. 25 years, this Mm. past year was our 25th anniversary. And um, it is geared toward high school students, Mm. uh, many of them in FFA, but that's not a requirement, Future Farmers of America. And um, it's held annually in conjunction with the National FFA Convention uh, in Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, we select from around the country 12 students who have done tractor restorations who who, uh, who are really deserving we bring them in uh, we've got a, a panel of really expert judges who um, who have a keen interest in antique tractors and um, and, and those judges the, these high school students present their projects to the judges yes. And uh, they have an opportunity to learn so much through the process of restoring an antique tractor. So they, they, they obviously learn the mechanical and STEM uh, skills that yes. they get from doing the work. They also learn budgeting and time management and perseverance uh, and, and uh, a hundred other intangible skills. And then they get them tested by these judges uh, who who challenge them very strongly, and at the at the end of the competition, of course, we we name a grand champion and a, a reserve champion and a, a third place finisher. They all get scholarship money uh, that that goes toward that that can contribute to their. Uh, higher education in whatever form it takes you know we have young people that compete who go on to become engineering students Yes. Um, as a matter of fact we've hired uh, a Texas m engineering student as an intern who was a former competitor uh, nice. in the competition um, some of them go on to to the trades right a lot mm-hmm. of them have a real interest in uh, in diesel mechanics and 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 they build a, a a career in the trades. Others go home to the family farm or go into agriculture. And so, you know, I'm always inspired by these incredibly young people. Mm. I'm always inspired to see how the experience of this tractor restoration competition um, contributes to their future success. And I'm, I'm always really proud as an Aggie, you know, that, that we are growing these leaders in agriculture and leaders in engineering uh, that are gonna contribute to to their communities going forward. So, mm-hmm. fantastic program. and One of many that Chevron sponsors. Right. It just happens to be the one that, that I get to participate in.
0: Love it. Well, you're in the chair, so let's talk about it. Yeah. So, I have um, a three-prong question but I love talking about this topic because that's our love language. We love talking about working with young people and inspiring them. So regarding this competition, so here it is. Where can our audience find more about it? Number two, why tractors and when can we become a partner?
1: I'm going to cop out a little bit here Uh because I don't have a ready answer and say that if you just Google Chevron Tractor Restoration Competition, you will find all the information you need to become a a contestant uh, and or to participate. And And this
0: is open to Texas schools and students? This
1: is open to anyone in uh, the United States. a national competition.
0: Oh, love it. Okay. So,
1: yeah, we had this year – student from texas one last year a young lady from san luis obispo california won. Nice. Yes. so we we have contestants from all over
0: okay very good and why tractors
1: why tractors you know I, the the program initially grew uh out of a marketing effort mm-hmm. because um, Chevron uh, has a, a in particular Chevron lubricants uh, has a very large presence in the agriculture sector. Yes. And so um the, it it started as really part of a a, a marketing effort. Uh, and an opportunity to support education, um, and, and it has grown from there, as I said, for 25 years.
0: Okay, and the final question, how can we be part of this? Is that even possible?
1: I, You know, I think it is. We are always looking for uh, people that are interested and, and would like to participate. I get a lot of... Um, I, I got a, get a lot of interest from within Chevron and people saying, hey, yes. how can I help? Yes. Uh, and uh, we get a fair amount of interest from uh, our, our support staff and, mm-hmm. and the folks that help us set up the competition. Um, so I, I would say, r- have somebody reach out to me and I will find a way for them to help.
0: Okay, We're reaching out, okay, <laughs> excellent. And before we leave this topic, Um, As far as working with students, getting them engaged and involved, especially in in particular this competition, what has been the key to keep the the hook, so to speak, to to get them uh, interested and involved and to keep them coming back or to keep those schools or communities coming back for this competition?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's not an easy one to answer. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, the bar to entry is relatively high because yes. you've got to find a tractor to restore, yes. right? And yes. uh, fortunately, we have some organizations and individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there are usually a couple of paths that people take to, to get there. Mm-hmm. Um in, in the case of a lot of our, our California students, um, one of our marketers in California, JB Doers, mm-hmm. runs a competition that's open to students in California. And they maintain an inventory of old tractors oh. that they will donate for, uh, for young people to restore. Um, and, and they'll work with them on doing that. Um, I find that in Texas, it, it is typically, Either uh, an FFA chapter in a local mm-hmm. high school uh, that does this as a, as a project. Very often, a, a local businessman, farmer, rancher will go to the local FFA chapter and say, "Hey, I have this older piece of equipment. Would you like to work on it?" and and they'll donate it that yeah. way. Others go, come to it through you know a, a family business, a family farm, or a family ranch, and so. Nice. Um, getting people involved is not always easy and takes a little bit of persistence and I, I will say that our support staff does a really good job of reaching out uh, through uh, AG teachers through uh, our, our local marketer networks and and others to try to encourage people to do it but it's not I, again, the barrier to entry is relatively high. And it's something that we're always really mindful of is that we have to create these opportunities because for the average high school student, right? It's a a pretty daunting task to think about doing something like that.
0: Absolutely. Okay, very nice. Well, thank you for spending that time with me on that subject. Um, So we'll pivot a bit more. You mentioned the golden word persistence Mm -hmm. in your last comments. So let's talk about that. I wanna know what persistence means to you, what it looks like to you, and then I wanna move on to leadership. Okay. So let's start with persistence.
1: You know, I, I think persistence, um, I, when I think about persistence, I, I, I think that per, persistence is really a combination of things. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it starts with just showing up every day, right? Um, and and that's a, a lesson uh, I've I've always emphasized to 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 my kids and to uh, and to others is that you know if if you show up every day on time, you're ahead of maybe ninety percent of the population. Uh, if if you persist in doing what you need to do, whatever the job, whatever the task. Uh, And and if you have the uh, um, the willpower to uh, to show up every day and do that job, then then I think you're you're already doing well. But I think the other element of persistence is you know to go back to our earlier discussion about goal setting. Right, it's about having uh, an end state in mind and being able to progress towards that, but being open to other experiences and other opportunities, um, because you just you, you never know where it's going to take you. But if you if you have an end in mind, yes. you can you can maintain uh, you can maintain your momentum toward that goal.
0: Nice. Without missing all the other opportunities. Without missing
1: all the other opportunities. Lovely. And
0: leadership?
1: Leadership. Um, Yeah, you know, I've spent really a a career in leadership, Mm -hmm. and I'd I'd be hard-pressed to define it. or to define it effectively. Of course, it, it, you know, it, if you go with a textbook definition of it's you know the, the art and science of influencing people to do yes. what you want them to do, that's, that's one thing. But I really and, and, and I've, I've probably matured a lot in, in my views over the years. I used to think leadership meant having everything done the way I wanted it done. Mm -hmm. I used to think that leadership meant that I needed to be involved in uh, every discussion, every decision, every aspect of of whatever uh, operation I was running. Um, And I did that really successfully, like as a lieutenant, uh, Mm -hmm. as a platoon leader, as a company commander. Your span of control is such that you've got the ability to really be involved in everything. What I found as I matured as, a, as an officer and in, in, in my career at Chevron, at some point, you're, 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 because your span of control increases, you can no longer, if you insist on being the linchpin for your organization, yes. you become an impediment to your organization and, and you paralyze your organization. And so at some point you begin to realize that, wow, leadership is really about freeing people to take initiative, to act within your intent, and to accomplish the things that they can accomplish, and empowering them to do that, um, and and so I, you know, I probably, as a, a, a senior captain or a, a junior major, uh, certainly when I was in battalion command, you begin to realize, oh wait, I leadership is about empowering people to operate within your intent and accomplish something and, Mm -hmm. and, and about developing them and about making them good. It's not about you being good. It's about making them good and helping them to be the best that they can be.
0: Mm, That is so well said, so well said. Thank you. Um, but just to go a little bit deeper. So when you were a very young child, did you recognize leadership? Um, aspects of yourself? Did you desire to, to lead like your friend group or your social group? Or or did you or did other people recognize that in you? Who discovered it first? You or then?
1: I think I probably did. I don't know that as a young child, I was much of a leader. Um, you know, I, I I think within my peer group, I'm not sure I would have been considered a leader. I'll tell you when I really got my first taste of leadership and and my, my first, uh, opportunity to lead was really through, and this kind of goes back, it we're coming full circle here. What was really within my local FFA chapter, uh, in, in Donna, Texas, right. Uh, as a high school student, uh, where I, was exposed to parliamentary procedure, mm-hmm. and I began to learn how to lead meetings and I began to learn how to and I wound up as the the president of our FFA chapter um, and I think the that that first taste of leadership yes. really um convinced me that it was it was something I I had a passion for Mm -hmm. and then of course you know come to A&M and and the Corps cadets and and then going on to be an army officer that those all of those experiences reinforced and amplified that
0: Mm. nice so taking that a step further and as we begin to wind down I want to know what messages do you have for our young people that are listening perhaps aspiring perhaps unsure
1: it's a it's a really good question i'll I'll take it back around to our, our tractor restoration competition right every year i tell people that the the few days that i get to spend in indianapolis at the FFA convention uh, and at the Tractor Restoration competition are, are the best days of my year. I really enjoy it. It's so easy today to, to look at our society, to look at social media, to look at the news, and to despair for the future of, uh, of our country.
0: Yes.
1: Um, and when I spend that week with those young people, I invariably walk away thinking it's gonna be all right. That's nice. Um, Because they have chosen to go out and do something that's not easy to do. They've challenged themselves. Yes. They've made a commitment to learning, to their education, and to improving. Yes. And then they have persevered uh, through a lot of challenges, and they've done it with the support of their families and their communities and their advisors. Um, so, you know, I, I think as I, if, if I were to talk to a young person today, I think it would be, you know, find something that you're interested in. Find something yes. that you're passionate about. Find something that's a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Nice. And go learn about it. Go do it. Don't be afraid to ask for a little bit of help along the way and, um, you know, set some goals, have some targets in mind. You you may not reach them or you may reach them via a route that doesn't look like the route you th- thought you would take, yes. but you can get there. Um, you know, and, and I think it's, uh, to, to go back to the, you know, it show up every day. Show up every day and do the work.
0: Love it. So as we as we begin to close out, is there anything that you thought maybe I would ask you that you really wanted to get across today, but I just haven't gotten to that, or I don't want to leave anything out before we close?
1: I, I guess the one thing is um, don't don't discount the value of of reading and learning, mm. right? For for. Gosh, I I love to read. I read, you know, my my habit is that I read for thirty minutes or an hour at least every day before I go to bed. Right, Right. it's just built into, uh, uh, and 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 a variety of topics, right, from uh, nonfiction and and history to uh, you know just pulpy, good fun stuff. I, I think that that is a really important habit for folks to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I love to read. I love to read a, a breadth of things. Um, I've done it since I was a kid, and it really does sort of expand your horizons um, to put the phone down and pick up a book or, or a tablet and, uh, and, and sort of immerse yourself in another world.
0: Yes. So on that note, are there any must-reads? Any, just a few top pick suggestions just for the general audience or maybe a particular audience?
1: Oh, gosh, I, you know, I, I love so many different things. Um, I, I like history in particular and um, I'll, I'll I'll put in just a couple of plugs. Um, in Texas, we're very fortunate to have uh, a, a really esteemed historian uh, who I, th- I think has passed away, but a guy by the name of T.R. Fehrenbach. Yes. Uh, and, and Fehrenbach wrote a couple of uh, great books. The 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 first one being a Texan is Lone Star. Um, and so if you have an interest in the history of, of Texas and uh, everything, Fehrenbach's Lone Star is uh, is a great resource uh the the other book that that he wrote and i wasn't going to mention these two books came out of nowhere because they weren't in my in my catalog uh in my mental script but um the the other book that fahrenbach wrote that i think is really informative um if if you want to think about the relationship of the soldier and the state, mm-hmm. uh, and and the relationship of the country to its military, is a book called "This Kind of War." Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, it's a history of the Korean War, uh, but uh, he he delves a bit into um, the the relationship between the citizen and the state, and and I think has some really important things to say about this American ethos of of the citizen soldier mm. um, that that uh, I've always been inspired by those are just a couple off the top of my head I've got thousands of my... I,
0: well, it wasn't fair of me to ask just uh, in closing, no, no, no. but I I had to because um, I, I love reading as well, and I love books, and I know we have a lot of readers out there that would appreciate your perspectives and your recommendations.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to talk books.
0: Oh, love it, love it. Well, then, hey, maybe you can give us, a when you think about it, a suggested read list, and we can publish it with everything else that we'll publish for you. Ab, no,
1: absolutely. You, you know what? I've got some... Uh, great recommendations uh, to take it down a little more practical turn yes. in the human and organizational performance um, field uh, and how we think about safety and I'll be happy to send those to you so that you can include them I think I think those are probably more practical than some of my other recommendations
0: Well, I will accept them all and we'll appreciate everyone yeah so on that note Colonel Hammonds, thank you so much. Not thank only you. was it a pleasure, but such an honor to have this chat with you today. Uh, it was just lovely and informative, and quite honestly, inspiring. Well,
1: I don't, I don't know about inspiring, but I've certainly enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, wonderful! And to our audience. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation today. I hope you have the opportunity to listen to the entire conversation and all of our other conversations on all of our platforms. And for me, and I hope for you, we'll take a note from Colonel Hammonds and wake up every day. Wake up, show up every day and do your job. Have a great day. Thank you.